I want to invite you, uh, if you have your Bibles, to please open them to the book of Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs chapter 22, we're going to go through seven verses, and only seven verses. They're pretty simple, and actually two of the verses are perhaps some of the most famous verses in the entire Bible, other than John's 3.16. And so as you're turning there, if you're not familiar with what we're doing or why we're doing it, uh, we're trying to go through the book of Proverbs verse by verse. And hopefully, as we set this up, you might learn a little bit something about interpretation. Uh, for instance, if someone sends you an email, there's a proper way to interpret it. Uh, you look at it as an email. You don't look at it as someone sending you a book of poetry, for instance. And so when we're in Proverbs, we have a little bit of leeway because it's divided up into chapters, um, but at the same time, it's not this tight-knit story, maybe like an email or a letter. So we're able to skip around just a little bit, and today we're in Proverbs chapter 22, but we hope to go through the entire book. However, here's some interesting things. Even though it's not a tight-knit book, it does have themes that run through each chapter or even parts of the chapter. And sometimes you can step back and look at the whole book of Proverbs, all the chapters, and you can pick out a specific subject. So it's a really neat book that gets into details of our life, but it does have some context and it does have a little bit, it does take a little bit of effort to actually interpret it. And this morning's kind of theme that runs through these seven verses is riches. And we're going to talk about that in just a little bit, but I want you to understand why we're actually choosing that theme. So let's look at those seven verses and make a note of where we find riches, and, and it'll help you understand not just that there's a theme here, but the context of the verses that don't maybe specifically mention it. And we're going to dig even deeper into that. So let's begin in verse 1. It says this, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. You can say it. And favor is better than silver or gold. All right. Verse two, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. Verse three, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Verse four, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Verse 5, thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. Verse 6, again a famous verse here, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Verse 7, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is a slave to the lender. So you can see here, there's this little theme of riches running through here. And this becomes important because let's start out with a kind of a snapshot of how this works big picture within the book of Proverbs. Let's read verse 3 again. You'll notice riches is not in this verse. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. So you can take the meaning of this particular verse and understand it, but you can't understand it how the author intended it without the context around it. So the meaning, the specific meaning in this case, is in context of riches. 
Notice this. Hold your place there and turn to Proverbs chapter 27. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 12. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 12. And this will really help you just enjoy the riches of the book of Proverbs as a whole. And it'll help you to understand why it's written the way it's written. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 12. It says this. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. You see, God's not just simply repeating himself. It's the same exact verse, but it's a verse in a different context. Let's back up a little bit in that passage. Look at verse 9. It says, oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Verse 10, do not forsake your friend and your father's friend. Uh, verse 14, whoever blesses his neighbor. Verse, uh, second half of verse 10, better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. So the prudent who sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it, is now presented to you in the context of neighbors and friendship. So you can think about that verse and it applies in a radically different situation. It applies in relation to neighbors and friends. So you can think of all sorts of ways that verse has meaning in that context. So you have this same verse in regard to riches that we'll get to in a moment, and the other context being friendship or neighbors. The idea is your neighbor is your friend, hopefully. And so... In these two areas, God is, is repeating the same verse, but it has tremendous application in a different way. Not only that, but here's this last little nugget I'll give you about the um, book of Proverbs. There are a few chapters that don't seem to have any sort of theme at all. Have you run across those? Now, let me ask you this. Did your life this past week or even just yesterday, did it have a theme? Probably didn't. All sorts of stuff. You woke up in the morning and you're just getting your coffee and your, your spouse comes to you and you're like, whoa, you haven't brushed your teeth yet. And you're like, man, I was just trying to get coffee and here I am insulted, right? And then you turn on the news and you're, oh man, I shouldn't have turned on the news. And you open up scripture and your day was, you were just hit by a hundred different things all day long. Well, guess what? That's how Proverbs is written on occasion. You just are assaulted from all these different angles and you're like, man, this doesn't seem to have any sort of theme. Guess what? Life doesn't have a theme as, it just, as you just walk it. Now, you, have, you can create that in your mission and your purpose, but it's this idea that you need to be prepared for all different stuff during the day. And Proverbs gives you that wisdom. So you're not just focused. I mean, it's great if your verse of the morning is like on riches, but if you're dealing with a, a irritating coworker all day, that's not really helpful, right? So let Proverbs speak to you and don't get upset with how God has written it. If, if there's not a pattern or a theme, go, wow, maybe I need to understand that. Maybe I need to actually hold some verses in my heart that aren't all connected together because who knows what I'm going to encounter during the day. 
So that's how Proverbs is written. And this morning we're looking at the idea of riches and some verses in context of that. So let's dig in. Verse 1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. When I was growing up, I used to go fishing with my dad, and, and uh, that meant uh, mom wasn't around. And so dad would spoil me, and the idea of getting spoiled was this. Uh, my mom would never keep sweets in the house. We would only have cakes and pies and stuff on holidays. And so whenever we would go fishing, we would make the obligatory stop at the fast food, not the fast food, the, uh, the uh, gas station, and we would load up on snacks. And my dad would hand me like a 5 or a $10 bill. And this is back when candy bars were like 25 cents a piece. He goes, go get whatever you want. And I'd pause and I'm like, serious? And I would come back to the counter for the weekend with just an armload of candy and chocolate. And my dad would never say a thing. It was like the only time in life that he just let me do whatever I wanted to do. And so it was awesome. I felt rich, right? And so because of that, it kind of was ingrained in me. Fast forward all the way to college, and I'm, uh, I have a job as a waiter at an Italian restaurant. And the owner that uh, was operating the restaurant, she had a policy. No one was allowed to have more than one Coke out of, the, out of the little dispensing fountain. And so I was like, man, I would love to just, just put my mouth under that and hit it. And just, I loved Coke at the time. And, but I was honorable enough never to hit the Coke button more than once. I would hit it, I would have my Coke for the night and move on. But some other employees, other waiters and bartenders, they would just go up there and drink their Coke. All, all night long. And I was like, man, I would really like to do that. I mean, who's it going to hurt, right? I mean, if you know anything about the restaurant business, that, that the Coke out of the dispenser is, I mean, virtually pennies. And we pay dollars for it. The, the owner's not going to miss it, right? But I chose not to do that. And one of the good decisions I made in college, I think. <laughs> well, one day I show up and I'm the only one. Me, the owner, and the, the, the cook's assistant. I'm like, where's everyone at? And she goes, I fired them all. They were drinking extra Coke. And I'm like, serious? <laughs> you fired them? And she was this kind of mean little Korean lady, and it was an Italian restaurant. It was kind of crazy. Uh, but yeah, she had no problem firing people. And I just realized, wow, they gave up their integrity over pennies. They chose what they, in their life, was riches and extra and, and good over their honor and their integrity. The question here, this is not a, a complicated verse. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, implies that everyone has this choice in life. As you're pursuing riches and, and you have to work and you have to acquire money to survive in this world, what is your price? Do you, do you give up your name? Do you choose to risk the favor of your boss or, or, or your customers or, or your spouse because you want to get a little extra gold or silver or riches. It's surprising what people will do as, as a chaplain. I, I hear all the stories of people shoplifting and even our community. And it's crazy. It's like 
One of the, the places I've discovered people shoplift the most is a local hardware store. I'm like, really? You're shoplifting nuts and bolts? That's your price? I mean, I could understand if you're robbing a bank, at least you're thinking, all right, I'll, I'll potentially risk it for 20 grand. But for a 10 cent nut, it's surprising though in the day and age in which we live how little value people put on their name or standing in good favor with the community or their neighbors or even their family. But God says a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. Verse 2, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. It's this idea is whether rich or poor, it makes no difference because we all have a creator and we stand in equal standing before God. And in this country, especially in our church and in the churches I've been a part of, really that that doesn't seem to be much of a problem. I don't notice a lot of people uh, being uh, kind of hateful or spiteful towards poor people. As a matter of fact, at least in our church, we have people that are extraordinarily generous and kind towards those who have less money. But here's what I have discovered. You ready? Let's read it again. It says, The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. What I have discovered is in our own hearts, we make the distinction not with other people, but ourselves. Have you ever heard the guy or the woman say this? Well, if the Lord blessed me with a million dollars, I'd build the church a new building. Or if I had a billion dollars, I would really, I would fix a lot of the problems around here. Or if, if I were rich, I would do this. You see, they're making this distinction like if they were rich, they could serve God in a greater way, but they never understand that being poor or whatever they are at that point in time, in our culture at least, what are they doing there? Have they viewed themselves in, in such a way that they're discounting that, hey, they're, we're equal before God, and God desires and can use a poor person to a greater degree even than a rich person in some cases. Your money has nothing to do with your value before God or your ability to serve God, serve others, and be a blessing in people's lives. Jesus had nothing. Paul, he was in prison most of the time. And even in his ministry, he was working most of the time to support his ministry. Riches have nothing to do with your standing before God or how God can use you. You can absolutely have not a penny to your name and be an incredible servant and disciple of Jesus Christ. He can use you to change the world. So don't let your own heart deceive you. Verse 3, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Oh my goodness. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Well, we could talk about that in general, but remember the theme is riches and we're, it's, it's within a context. 
So the, the context is riches. Have you ever made a stupid financial decision? Oh, yeah, all right? <laughs> Probably the first dumb financial decision was maybe to get a credit card. Or uh, I don't know about you, but I, I've told you my very, well, it was actually my very first car of my own. I had to share a car with my sister growing up. That stunk. And so, guess what? I got the used 1984 Camaro T-Tops. And uh, I thought that was super cool, and I chose to ignore the blue exhaust, right? That when you hit the gas, this huge cloud of, of smoke would come out of the exhaust, right? I was being simple, and I suffered for it for uh, quite a while. And my dad kind of suffered for it because he was responsible for me. So that meant after a while that we had to do a complete uh, replacement of the engine. And uh, it got probably 12 miles to the gallon if I was lucky. And it, it meant that, therefore, I would likely get tickets and insurance was higher. And the whole idea of this cheap, cool car turned out to be just a money pit. Ever buy a house like that? You're out there watching the TV shows that are flipping houses, and you buy the house, well, this will be easy. They get it done in half an hour. How hard could it be? <laughs> right? And you get it all done, you know, two years later, and a divorce lawyer, you know, considered, and you're looking at it, and you're like, well... If you just stand like this, turn the lights out, and look at it like this, it looks pretty good. You discover you're not a carpenter or a plumber. And those pros that get paid very much for those services earn it, every penny of it. We sometimes don't see the danger, and we suffer for it. But the prudent sees the danger and hides himself. Oh, wow, you have a lot of people wanting your money for a lot of reasons. Run, right? If someone has a deal for you, probably not a good deal. I learned this in negotiating. If someone says, hey, I've got something on sale or I've got a deal for you, but it's only good for the day or the next half hour, you need to decide. Well, my answer is, you're out of luck. I never make a financial decision of any size without praying about it. And I certainly never make a huge financial decision without consulting someone that's good at finances. Because guess what? Part of my prudence isn't that I became a great financial expert. It is that I recognize that I stink at finances. And so I'm going to go talk to someone that has a little bit of wisdom. And I'm especially going to dig into God's word and find out what it says. In this very simple thing, if you run across something that seems a little dangerous, a little sketchy, a little too good to be true, Craigslist, right? Uh, you might hide yourself from it. I mean, you could get a PhD in finance, and if you just took this one verse, you would be just as well off. Imagine if you could live your whole life and never make a stupid financial decision. Wow. That would be a good thing, right? Verse 4, the reward for humility. All right, so as we're changing our perspective on the value of riches and gold and silver and what's really valuable, verse 4 says, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor 
in life. One uh, commentator writes this, humility and the fear of the Lord go together. A person cannot be fearing God, in other words, worshiping, trusting, obeying, and serving him, and be filled with selfish pride at the same time. Wealth, honor, and life result from fearing God, as in verse 21, 21. They also come from righteous living. So the fear of the Lord and righteousness are closely related. But I love the idea. You cannot be filled with selfish pride at the same time that you're humbly fearing or worshiping God. I've discovered this. Some of the most amazing people that I've ever met are true believers in Jesus Christ. And it has nothing to do with their bank account. They're just incredibly cool people to be around because they're incredibly humble. Uh, They're incredibly loving. They're incredibly giving and generous and gracious. When you humble yourself before the Lord in, in, in the fear of God, you examine your own heart. You, you come to any perspective with, hey, I may be sinning. I may be wrong. Uh, I'm not the ultimate authority. God is. And any question that you have, any concern, any difficulty, God's word is the arbitrator. And so if that's the perspective that you come to anything with, then you can work it out. But if you have arrogance and pride, this isn't to say that you might not be right in your opinion or your perspective, but you have some humility in it. And so, especially when it comes to finances, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches, honor, and life. I've discovered any sort of organization that I've ever worked for, the great leaders that seem to be rewarded over the long haul, are actually believers. Or at a very minimum, they have some of these characteristics of people who are believers in Christ because people just like them on their team. They get promotions because they're likable. So think about this. If you're a boss, any boss in any situation, do you want someone working for you who is a prideful, arrogant jerk? Would you like to manage that employee Not very long. I don't care how good they are. They've really become annoying. But imagine if someone's incredibly humble, incredibly gracious, and they're good at their job. I'd be like, you're in line for the next promotion. Now, that may not seem fair, but that's kind of the way the world works. Not only that, but the riches that person acquires is is far beyond money. It's amazing, they, they acquire the riches of friendship, of trust, of honor, all those things. So the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is not just riches, but it's honor and it's life. They avoid lots of the troubles that prideful, arrogant people find themselves in. Verse 5, thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. Notice this, thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. It's this imagery of walking through the forest. 
I don't know about you, uh, some crazy people around here like to walk through the forest for fun. They call it hiking or whatever. I'm, I'm still, I'm trying. I'm really trying to get on board there. But at some point, you'll get off path and you'll find yourself uh, among a few thorns. But quite frankly, we don't really have thorns compared to Louisiana. Where I was at before I lived here for a little while, I spent a couple years in Louisiana. And literally, they have these kind of vines that grow up straight out of the ground. And you would think once they get about this high, they're about that big around, that they would just flop over. They don't. It's the craziest thing in the world. You see these vines that grow 30 feet in the air, and they're just standing there by themselves. I don't know how God does it, but they have these wicked thorns. And then they, like two or three or four, grow together. And it's one of the worst possible experiences you can imagine is walking through the woods of Louisiana where there's cottonmouth snakes and all sorts of things that bite you and to run into some of these vines. As you do that, you realize wow, I should have been much smarter and stayed on the path if there was one. But unfortunately, I would do that a lot because I would just not pay attention. Well, one day, I'm trying to clean these vines out of the very back portion of our lot. And uh, if you know me, you know that I hate flying, stinging insects like wasps. Well, I was swinging and I hit a wasp nest with this machete that I had. And so the wasps start buzzing me instead of remaining cool, calm, and collected like, oh yeah, yeah. No, I'm like a little girl. I'm screaming and I take off running, not down the path, right? And so I had not quite made it to this one patch in, in the backyard there and I hit these vines. And I don't care how many times I could have got stung by those wasps, it was nothing compared to the, what those vines did to me as I ran through them back to the house. And I'm standing at the house. I'm just bloody. I'm just hurting all over. And I'm looking and I'm like, I hope no one saw that, right? <laughs> it's embarrassing. It's truly embarrassing. But that's what the picture is that the writer here presents for the way of the crooked. If you ever talk to a criminal, it's amazing. They're complicated plans, right? If they just put half the effort into to getting a job as they did into scheming, they would be all right. But they have these incredible plans and they end up in the thorns. But whoever guards his soul, in other words, these decisions that you make between right and wrong, between who you love and worship and, and who you will follow. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from those thorns. You know, I, I have relatives like you whose lives are soap operas. But most of you who are seeking God, your life is really kind of boring, right? You don't have all the, the catastrophes that everyone else has. Now, your kids may bring those into your life or your grandkids but it's amazing how simple it is just when, when you're living life for God. You don't have the soap opera. Well, finally, we get to verse 6. Uh, perhaps the most hated verse in the entire Bible by our parents here in the, uh, the church, or maybe not, but let's read it. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, here's the first interpretation. It's not that simple. I get that all the time. I start that verse, and whatever parent I'm talking to, well, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. And I go, Jesus wept. And they go, it's not that, 
oh, okay, that's maybe, oh, yeah. Maybe that's not how we interpret Scripture by just simply responding, it's not that simple. Well, here's option two of interpret, uh, interpreting verse six. Scott, if you had kids, you'd understand, <laughs> right? It's like all of a sudden uh, I'm writing Scripture and I just happen to write this proverb and hand it to him like I wrote it, right? Well, if you had kids, you would understand, well, imagine this. We have a creator who actually created us, created our kids, and knows our hearts. So, yeah, uh, I, I think God actually knows what's going on. It, it's not too complicated for God. And I think he kind of understands. So what is option number three? That's not a promise. So all of a sudden, we have biblical scholars out there going, well, Proverbs is just proverbial. It's generally true. But that's not promissory. And I've discovered every parent wants to believe that they are the exception or their child is the exception. So we have all these exceptions out here, but as far as how this really works, I'm sure it works for some parents and some kids, but it's not a promise. So I get to claim the exception here as they're looking at their kid who's on their way to jail. Uh, and then finally... It's talking about their giftedness, not righteousness. Well, this is a little bit more legitimate. Let's read it. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. So they're claiming the way is how the child is gifted. So if they're gifted in art, you train them up in art, and they won't forget it. When they're old, they will continue. Well, uh, that's kind of a narrow interpretation that not many people really hold to. I would not actually look at it from that perspective. How would I look at it? Well, I just explained it to you. We're going to look at it in context, in the context of riches. Imagine that. So let's look at it. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I have discovered, and this would be a tough one for me, everyone seems to have a different philosophy in how they're going to raise kids. And they all believe it's right, they all believe it's biblical, and they all believe that everyone else is wrong. That's the way it works. Well, let's look at this word train. It occurs five times in the, in the Hebrew, in the entire Old Testament, five times. Just listen here. Deuteronomy 20, verse 5. This is where this verb in Hebrew is translated into English. It's speaking of a very odd situation, but just go with it for now. It says this. Then the officer shall speak to the people saying, is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? This Hebrew word is translated dedicated it. Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle and another man dedicate it. So twice in Deuteronomy 20 verse 5, this verb for train is translated dedicate. 1 Kings 8, 63, Solomon offered as peace offerings to the Lord 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. Once again, this verb train is translated dedicated. Finally, 2 Chronicles 7, 5, King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of the Lord. And in Proverbs 22, 6, it's train. So of the five times this verb is used in the Hebrew Old Testament, four times it's referring to dedicating, setting something aside specifically to God. 
So that's the context, that's the, that's the background usage of this Hebrew word for train as you're thinking about raising your kids. It is to train, but it is dedicating. It is setting them aside to God. Train up a child in the way he should go. Well, generically, let's look at this. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9. You can listen to it or you can turn there. But this is in the Old Testament. It's revealed in the law. It's not changed or added to or anything other than what we can see right here in the New Testament. It says this, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So this is Moses speaking to the people, and he's saying, Take these words of God and put them on your heart. So step number one is put them on your heart. Verse 7 of Deuteronomy 6, You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. There's this picture of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength and with all your might. And then as you take these words, you're to place them on your heart and you're to teach them to your children. And you're to talk of them constantly, all day, every day. Conversationally, we are commanded by God to take his word and build our children up, to train them up. They are dedicated to the Lord. This is all focused on God and what he desires of our kids. So the question now as we come back to verse 6, Train up a child in the way he should go. Remember, as you walk along the way, you're speaking, teaching, discussing these things. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Is that how you're raising your kids? I've discovered the three most powerful things in people's lives in the past 12 years I've been in ministry. First and foremost, obviously, it's being born again. This miracle that God does in our hearts when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and repent and turn to him. That changes people's lives more than anything I've seen in all the world. But in this world, two things that are the most powerful I've seen is how a child is raised and a traumatic experience that someone might experience in life, either as a child or an adult, some sort of terrible tragedy. Those two things will affect people more than anything else, more than their education, more than any, any sports team, more than anything else. So as you think about how you're raising your kid, realize that it is one of the most powerful things that you can do, and you have a choice on how you raise them. And then if they do experience some sort of tragedy as a child or adult, they have a foundation for understanding how to process it, how to respond to it, and how to have hope in it. And hopefully, by God's grace, they do so as a child of God. So is raising children simple? No. It's quite complicated. But that's not the claim that this verse is making. It's not claiming that it's not complicated. It's not claiming that only people with kids can speak into other people's lives who have kids. It's simply saying, 
train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So let's set aside the defensiveness and realize, wow, what can we do? And here's the cool thing. Let's start out with the context. What does this mean in regards to riches? Well, how much effort did your parents put into you training you on how to manage money, how to earn money, how to save money? Some of you are shaking your head like, not at all. As a matter of fact, my parent was probably the worst example I can imagine. They were always in debt. They were always bankrupt. They were always cheating. And so if you have ever wondered why people have such problems with their finances, don't be too quick to throw them under the bus. They may have never been exposed to what God desires of them in finances. Now, Dave Ramsey is not a perfect guy. He is not a perfect system, but he does have an approach, a fairly biblical approach to finances. So if, if you have never been through the financial peace or uh, have never taught your children those principles, he takes much of that out of scripture. I would encourage you right where you're at, right at the age your children are at, begin talking to them and training them and explaining to them how finances and riches work. And what's more important? Is it a good name or is it riches? Is it honor or riches? How do you actually achieve riches? By seeking riches or just simply honoring God and God will take care of your needs? It's an amazing perspective that so few children ever get. About the best is, well, we'll, we'll give them a, an allowance if they do some chores. Or we'll, we'll teach them to put a little money in, in the offering box when we go to church. God bless you. I'm, I'm glad. But it gets far more complicated than that. I have never seen a young 20-something-year-old be in dire financial straits because they can't figure out an allowance or they don't know how to give a little bit of money to people. It's all those other things, debt, credit cards, budgets, and, and stuff. So there is a path forward, and, and Scripture talks about that, and I would encourage you to do that. And verse 7 says this, as far as the specifics, just a little bit of advice here. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. I can just tell you, Borrowing money is not a sin. It is just very foolish in many cases. And here, slave literally means slave. Uh, in the Old Testament, specifically in Exodus, Exodus chapter 21, verse 2, it says, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If you, if you think you're really in debt, you're not. Uh, in the Old Testament, if you got in debt and couldn't pay back, they would just take you or your kids. It's amazing. So there is something far worse than being poor. It's called being a slave. And that imagery is used here. The borrower is a slave to the lender. The rich rules over the poor. I would encourage you as you teach your kids, teach them to save up money, have the discipline to not or put off their desires long enough that they don't have to borrow money to get it. Huge, huge topic that we could speak of for days. But let me leave you with this. What do you consider important in your life? Has riches replaced God? 
If I were to look at your day planner, your banking statements, your Amazon purchase history, all those good things, how much do you invest in God versus the things of this world? It's just a simple question. And what sort of return have you got for all your efforts? What sort of peace has whatever wealth that you've acquired brought you? Or what peace do you have in the God of creation who loves you and has all of eternity for you? It's easy to get caught up in the riches of this world. I hope that you haven't. And I pray this week, if you have, that you turn back to a better way of thinking. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so very much for your grace in my life. I thank you for this church. What a blessing they are. I pray that you will just draw them close together. Help them to love one another. Help them to open up their lives, to be vulnerable, uh, to, to care enough about others to ask about the tough stuff, Lord. Help us to view our wealth, our lives through the lens of, of your power, your glory, your desires, your purpose. We love you and praise you. In Christ's name we pray this. Amen.